fun. Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and this is our after show of Under the Banner of Heaven, and we are so excited to have a special guest on. But before we go there, I just got to do some shameless promotion. The merch store is open. We uh, The hats are currently sold out, but we have uh, mouse pads, we have phone cases, we have, uh, somebody bought a sticker, like we have stickers, somebody's bought a sticker, so somebody bought a t-shirt yesterday, really exciting. Also, just a reminder uh, to get your entries in for the free book giveaway of the two Jonathan Neville books that I have. Uh, Jonathan's actually going to be speaking at the MHA about his book, Infinite Goodness, Joseph Smith, Jonathan Edwards, and the Book of Mormon. And get your entries in by the 31st, put in the subject line, book contest, indicate what, if you want to be entered for both books or just one. Uh, and I'm going to have Jonathan draw the names out of a hat at the MHA, and we might even film it. Also, just want to give props to Greg Cofford Books, who sent me an advanced reading, reading copy of uh, Method Infinite, Freemasonry, and the Mormon Restoration. Uh, it's pretty good stuff. I've already been paging through it. So thanks to my homies out that way. All right, let's get started. Lindsay, we really appreciate you coming onto the program today. I would have never guessed that here you are, consultant for the series, is coming onto our show. Thank you so much for coming on. I am so happy to be here. So, Rebecca, why don't you get things started? Why don't I get things started? Well, first, I have to also shamelessly promote, I've purchased your mug, finally, Steve. So, and it's amazing. I would encourage everyone to get one. And I also can't neglect this mug because I had it made specially for this. So, I, I may be dual mugging today. If oh, yeah. It. Speaking of dual mugs, uh, Rick Bennett just sent me his latest. This is his redesign of his logo. Looks pretty sharp and clean. Good job. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. So Rebecca, why don't you just kick this thing off? Well, we are thrilled to have Lindsay on today. Um, I have to say, I'm really enjoying the group, the watch group that you started on Facebook. And just, I mean, the comments are incredible. Have you been following that, Steve, at all? Reading oh, yeah. through that? Yeah. Just, I posted something the other day about uh, the our chocolates against the word of wisdom and just had a huge response just as everybody's talking about it and people are just talking nonstop. So I think today with Lindsay here, I can't even think about what kinds of questions we can start with. There's so much I want to ask. I think maybe we talked about earlier, Steve, just kind of having sort of an overview of what the experience was like, how my question would be, how did this even happen that you became a consultant for this? Are you and um, Dustin Lance Black friends? How did it start off in embryo? I'm so curious. Well, we're friends now. Uh, I didn't know him prior to the show. He had done some research and um, he was connected to a mutual friend of ours, Troy Williams. They they go way back. They're close friends. And Troy has a lot of crossover in fundamentalist communities. Um, I don't want to share much of his story without his permission, but he has shared publicly and you can check out his Facebook. He, he had a family member that uh, sought out fundamentalism, joined a fundamentalist community. Troy almost converted to uh, the AUB himself. And so he, from the mainstream church, and then he uh, accepted sort of the fact that he was a gay Mormon man and had to contend with that. And now he runs Equality Utah. And so because of all of that, he has uh, a deep knowledge of fundamentalism. And that's kind of how Troy and I know each other. And so they brought me on because they, it became clear in the series that they needed a lot of research and um, my expertise in the Mormon fundamentalist sects, especially in Utah, uh, was one of the main reasons they brought me on. But also I run Sunstone, it's a nonprofit 
that studies Mormonism. So I study Mormon culture, theology, and ideas all day long. And I have access to some of the best historians and scholars. So I think that that made me a good fit. And that's how Lance and I became friends. Oh, that's great. I just love, and, and just let me ask you, what's it like? Like, were you on the set often? Uh, like, did you, were you in the day-to-day -day production or how, how did that work? Yeah, so uh, I, I started, they had actually already filmed a few scenes when they brought me on. And I think we all wish that I could have been brought on a little earlier, but uh, it first started back in July when uh, Andrew Garfield came to Salt Lake City. He wanted a tour of Mormonism basically. And so we hosted a Mormon potluck at my house and Andrew Garfield came to my house and we had a barbecue and I introduced him to all kinds of Mormons. We had a a Mormon bishop there. We had a Mormon cop there. We had a variety of Mormon women, some who are serving in the Relief Society, some ex-Mormon women, some gay Mormons. We wanted a whole group of people so he could kind of talk to people. And then uh, he visited church in Layton, Utah with a bishop. Uh, I can't imagine what that was like for the ward. And then, uh, yeah, we just sort of took him around and showed him stuff. So that was my first introduction. And then I started heavily researching on the show. So uh, it, it was a mix of going to Calgary. We shot in Calgary. So I was up in Calgary a few times. I think they would have preferred to have me on set the whole time. And, and if I had been on set, maybe we could have fixed a few of the heavenly fathers, but, uh, because I grew up Mormon and I'm in a Mormon community, I have three kids and they're three young kids and I'm a single mom. And so I, it was challenging and kind of, um, difficult for me in the sense that, I would go up on set with these hundreds of dedicated artists and filmmakers. And it was so incredible because, you know, I, I'm a creative myself. And so to be with people like that who have the same work ethic and ethos that I do was incredible, but none of them had kids. I think I found one person among the sea of a hundred people that have kids. And I live in Utah. That is not my world. I mean, I, everyone I know has kids. And so to have to juggle custody and my schedule and being there for my kids and making sure that they're supported, that was really challenging. And, and I'm really lucky that the Banner folks understood that and worked with me. They allowed me to work from wherever I could. But yeah, I did get to go on set uh, several times and it was an unbelievable experience. And Andrew Garfield, is, he seems like a nice guy. He's everything everyone says he is, all the good stuff. I mean, he truly is legitimately deeply kind, thoughtful, empathetic. And, and I would say I found that to be true about all of the folks that I worked with. I was stunned, actually astounded with the care that they took uh, because sometimes we were doing things um, that you know, make Mormons look weird. And for the first time, me when, when you're explaining it as someone who's been enmeshed in it your whole life, and then you're like explaining it to outsiders, it's kind of startling being like, oh, this is really weird for me to explain. But everyone was so thoughtful and considerate. And uh, sometimes in ways, I don't think that Mormonism, Mormonism even deserved to be treated. It, so I really appreciated that about working with this group of people. Did he mention, did Andrew mention anything about what it was like to come off of, well, playing Jim Baker, right? A, a Christian evangelist. And now he's playing in the, I mean, it seems like he's immersing himself in these 
religious roles lately? Did he mention anything about that? I was curious. I mean, we had talked uh, with him about that a little bit. I think he's done some public interviews. He He's drawn to roles of spirituality and faith and um, philosophy and that kind of thing. He did silence where he studied, um, you know, to be, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, what's the tradition? I'm uh, Jesuit? Jesuit? Jesuit priest. Yeah. He said he had, he had mentored with a Jesuit priest for like six months or something. I can't remember, uh, before he did that role. And he really did dive into this role as well. And I, I imagine with Jim Baker, it was the same. We didn't, we didn't talk a lot about his performance there because, a lot of it's ongoing and you can't talk about projects. And when I first met Andrew, I don't think that the show was released yet. Hmm. Hmm. So um, I, I just wonder um, when you're interacting with all these people who are outsiders and you had said that sometimes Mormonism gets treated better in the show than you think it deserves and you're explaining to them uh, this world. And then maybe can you give us some examples of as a consultant on the show, uh, where maybe may a particular scene or something that happens in the show that perhaps you you had a role in in maybe making an adjustment or or adding something into the into the series. Sure. So uh, the very first work that I did, they called me in sort of a panic because there were so many questions, and and so right away I'm just like you know loaded with hundred questions about the Lafferty's, about Mormonism, about Mormon history, culture, and I'm and I'm researching as fast as I can and sending them off to various departments, and you know I'm I'm a good researcher, I'm a quick researcher, so that that was fine. But then they said we need you to come on set, we need you to be here, we're going to be doing this temple scene, and that startled me because uh, I still I'm an endowed member. I I got married in the Salt Lake Temple in 2002 and got my endowments out a few days before and that is still a sacred experience to me even though i wouldn't say it was necessarily a positive experience it i take seriously the the covenants that that i took and uh those matter to me and 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 my people's feelings about that matter to me and the history of it matters deeply to me so it was uh not something that i realized i would be doing when i when i first signed up for it and and i really struggled with that uh deeply and Lance was so considerate of my feelings and, you know, wasn't going to ask me to do anything that I didn't want to do. So my first day on set, they brought me up to Calgary and they had built the, the temple in, in a warehouse. It was my first day on a movie set. Uh, it was very overwhelming. I had helped, you know, send pictures back and forth and dimensions and Renee Reed, who did the, the, you know, the whole set design is brilliant. Her researchers had already done such a good job. And then I had helped with these details. And uh, I can't explain what it's like walking into a room like that. You walk into a warehouse, so it's already so strange. You know, you're, it was during COVID too. So we're testing at all these checkpoints. Then I have my own trailer. I'm sitting in my own trailer going, what is going on? No, not knowing what to do. Everyone's being so nice. And they sort of escort me on and here I'm in the temple again. And my job was to help block the scene. Blocking the scene means you sort of practice. You show the actors where to go, what to do. 
And it became pretty clear that there was a lot of misunderstandings right out the gate. So the director at the time saw this endowment as a wedding scene. And it is in the episode three, it's a wedding, it's the wedding of Brenda. Um, but what I didn't realize until I had to explain it to outsiders is the endowment that Brenda was going through is different than the marriage. There's, there are two different ceremonies and they were depicting the endowment before Brenda's marriage. And so to me, it's very separate, but to outsiders, what's the difference? It all happens kind of sequentially, what does it matter? So uh, right away, I had to explain, you're not walking down the aisle. You know, Brenda's not coming down the aisle like you normally do. You're all filtering in. And right away, I start directing my life, you know, my own experience. So Brenda, we had her sit where I sat. We had Alan sit where my husband sat. We had her mom and mother-in-law sit where mine did and, and the sisters. And then they had dialogue in the temple. And I was like, no, you're not allowed to talk. So we had the temple matron shushing them like they shushed me. And it was so surreal and strange. One of the, the funny stories I tell is um, Joseph Accord had been replicating the garments of that time period. And Sandra Tanner was so gracious. She has a, she has sort of an archive. She gave us different styles for men and women of the time so we could get it accurate. And so we had, Joseph Court had replicated the garment and to the actors, these are costumes, right? They're costumes. They go to makeup, they put on their costumes. So they're in their garments and they had robes on and to block the scene, they're not in full costume yet. So they're not in the temple clothes. So they all come in in their garments <laughs> and for them, they're in costumes. Rebecca, you, I can see it on your face. For me, I'm like, right? I was just like, they're naked. Where do I look? You know, for me, this is their underwear. And it, it was so wild. In episode six, there's this great scene where Pyrie's mom comes out and she's kind of in her garments and you can see the bishop, he's looking down. That's exactly, I was just like, I don't know where to look. This is so weird. It's, you know, here are the Lafferty brothers and they're in their underwear and I actually think the Lafferty men were not in their garments. I think they were in their temple clothes, but all the women. So it was so, so startling. And I, I have to say it was kind of triggering too. I did not expect to be that. So I'm really nervous. I'm explaining to people. And one of these moments, uh, Stephen, this is what I was referring to is they say, okay, well, what do you mean it's not the wedding ceremony this is her marriage and i was like no 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 it's not i'm trying to explain i said and plus there's more people here they just had the family and they're like what do you mean there's more people there's strangers at your wedding and i was like yeah kind of i mean it's an endowment and you know the month that brenda would have gotten married the month that i got married at the salt lake temple it's very busy it's bride month which was a weird thing to say but that's what it is you have to reserve a spot and I said, and here on the first row would be all brides. And they're like, what? And that's this moment where I'm like, oh, this, this, what I'm about to say is going to be really weird. This first row is all brides. The, all the women getting married today, we marry them all off at once, go in this room. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, we are weird. We are weird. Yeah, this is the bride row where we send, we mass produce all of our brides, just like everyone, you know, says Mormons are crazy with marriage. So it was one of those moments where I was just like, this is so strange to, to tell people, but everyone was so respectful. And uh, uh, I remember Wyatt Russell, who plays Dan Lafferty, he's got the beard. 
he's in white clothes. I, he might've had the hat on. He comes and sits in the front row and he's just looking up at me like very thoughtfully with those blue eyes. And I'm like, I'm talking to Dan Lafferty in the temple. What is happening right now? This is so weird. And I got really nervous. Um, I just think it was really overwhelming and I kind of shut down. They were asking me really thoughtful questions. What would you have thought? What was it like for you? And I, I, I just said, I feel like a, a monkey in the zoo right now. And um, Seth Numerick, who who plays Robin in the series, like like helped walk me out. He's very thoughtful. He's like, I get it. It's very overwhelming. And then Rory Culkin came over and said, can I ask you a few questions about the doctrine of blood atonement? And I was just like 20 minutes explaining blood atonement to Rory Culkin in the temple. This is not what I saw for my life, you know? And I called my mom that night. I think I've said this on, on another podcast, but my mom, um, is a very devout Orthodox member. She had been to the temple that day. And she, I said, well, what was your day like? And she said, well, I went to the temple and I thought, oh gosh, me too. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was very challenging. We tried to be very, very, very respectful. I think you can tell, um, we didn't reveal anything that I think would be deeply offensive. The oath itself is offensive, but I, I feel um, in integrity with that because I think that oath is dangerous. I think it was a terrible oath. I think the history behind it is not good. And I never took that oath. It was taken out uh, from the temple ceremony by the time that I went in. So I don't feel like I betrayed any of my covenants. And so, yeah, I felt like that was done with such care and I feel pretty good about how it was portrayed. Yeah, I've heard pretty positive remarks about how the how it was portrayed as well, um, inclu including Benjamin Schaefer actually uh, did. And I wanted to ask you, uh, were there any other people with LDS backgrounds or fundamentalist backgrounds that were also consultants to the show? Yeah, so part of the reason I was chosen is because of my access to all of these people. So I had an advisory team um, that included three male temple workers and one current female temple worker. And um, some of them don't want their names out there for obvious reasons, but one was a current temple worker and she was incredibly helpful. And then um, I had some historians uh, that I consulted, Gary Bergera, who wrote the history of the temple development, um, answered a lot of my questions. I had Moroni Jessup, I had Benjamin Schaefer, um, I asked Anne Hatch, who's a temple matron in the fundamentalist tradition, some questions. So yeah, we had that. We we had, you know, there's this big, I guess Desert News had printed something where they said they had asked FX if there were faithful members involved and they said no. Like, I don't even know why they printed that. That must be misinformation because uh, we did tell them, yes, that there were, because there were. We had bishops, we had uh, Relief Society presence, we had, we had, a good number of faithful people that we consulted. And I just think that that's such an interesting question too, because if faith is like your, um, your litmus for who gets to be asked, then it's like, where does that end? You know, cause Dan Lafferty's faithful, still faithful. Uh, it, it, I don't know that that really qualifies people, but yes, we did have a lot of faithful people. We had a lot of scholars, a lot of scholars. And fundamentalists that helped it was really exciting. I think a lot of people did not get that message. I have family members, um, active Mormons, who said, "Oh, nobody from the church worked on that. No active Mormons were involved." So I think that message is out there, and it's a way that you can sort of 
discount the entire thing, right? There was nobody of our people that consulted in any way. So I that, totally understand that. Definitely that. out there. <laughs> yeah, it's I I I, I was disappointed with the article, not only because it wasn't true, but because it did seem to to want to undermine it. And again, I would say we talked about this in that Facebook group. You're talking about who gets to tell this story is going to church the the thing that makes you worthy to tell the story, because if that's so, then I can have plenty of faithful people uh, who don't know anything about history tell the story. Or if, if faith and belief in Mormonism is accurate, then I, I'm I'm gonna be extreme here, but why not ask Warren Jeffs to do it? Like, is that the thing that makes you qualified? Uh, I don't think that it is. You have to have a mix of people and that's what we did. And uh, I, again, I'm really proud of the people. I've named a few of the people who I think are okay with me naming them um, on my Facebook, some scholars who helped. But there are, for this reason, there are people that don't want their name to be involved, but agreed as I did, regardless of the turnout of the show, we all believe that getting it closer to accurate is good for everybody. Hmm. Well, uh, I just, I kind of want to just move on to um, the episode uh, a little bit. Um, uh, maybe let's just explore some of the themes. First of all, I have to say, I think this by far has been the best episode of the series so far. Uh, what do you think, Rebecca? You think the same? Yeah, I, I think it's, like I said last time, getting darker and darker, but of course it necessarily will, and just delving into some of those deeper things, and especially as Jeb is now completely going off the rails, right? And that scene in the car, everybody's talking about that. Just, just so emotional, so powerful. Um, I thought it was done really well. And, you know, this is dealing with now his personal faith crisis, you know. Right. And, you know, of course, folks, I don't know how familiar you are with my story. Uh, I've talked about it on Mormon stories, but, you know, I, I, went, I was an atheist for quite a while. And people don't realize um, losing one's faith really sucks. I tell people it's like uh, you, if you once you lose your faith in God, you lost your best friend. And it's a grieving process that people go through. So I thought it was very powerful how they, I think they got this right. I think that the, the, the sense of having a faith crisis and, 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 and everything that you thought was a solid foundation gets removed from you. I thought that Andrew did a great job um, just kind of, you know, showing that. Yeah, I, th I think so too. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I've seen a critique of this episode saying, oh, it's centering on Jeb's faith crisis. Uh, I, I would say that every character, a good writer, especially for television, it, you have to have every character has to have these access points and these archetypes that every, every um, audience member can connect with. And so for Jeb's arc, Jeb's arc is a faith crisis. And I would say that that was brought on and developed over the course of times. So one of the beautiful things about Lance's storytelling is he has a script, but it's very fluid and very moldable. And he allows the actors to inject things and it allowed me to inject things. And it, it was pretty remarkable to see, to see the experience. So when we started out and we had Andrew meet a bunch of cops. We had him meet some investigators on the case. And then we had him talk to some cops who had been through this. And one of the cops uh, is a police officer in Utah County, and he's still a working officer. And he got in contact with me years ago when I started doing some stuff with uh, fundamentalists. And I got into a dangerous sort of a dangerous situation. And I was really nervous about it. 
uh, this officer was very helpful to me and he is mainstream Orthodox Latter-day Saint, but he is an atheist because he had worked on a case uh, kind of similar to the one that you see Jeb working on. So I'd put Andrew in touch with him early on. And this man is also a man that refuses to be acknowledged partially because he's a working cop and also because his wife is very, very devout. And she doesn't even know that he consulted on the show. That's how, that's how uh, fraught this is for him. And so Andrew working with him, it became foundational. This, this cop story, you know, when people say, oh, this, this show doesn't ring true. And I just, I just always think it doesn't ring true for you, but we brought on people where every single step along the way, it rang true for someone. And that Mormon story matters. Even if you don't think it's a legitimate Mormon story, because it doesn't match up your version, it does for other people. And that was definitely the case with this cop who it, it's been interesting to see. I reached out to him a couple uh, weeks ago and I said, Andrew is saying great things about you publicly. Of course, we're not naming you. I just wanted you to know like how important you are. And he said, it's so great. Thank you. And uh, so happy to help. If my wife ever knew that I did this, she would roll her eyes. <laughs> I think is what he said. So yeah, that, that moment is based on a real, a real thing. And that's why I think it translates so well. Did, wow. <laughs> I have to ask about the, uh, the voice of the seventies. Um, did they go over tapes, uh, conference broadcasts? That was so accurate and even sort of over the top next level, even creepier. I mean, ooh, it gave me goosebumps just the way that they were able to get the cadence and the speech. I mean, it's a real thing. It's very unique. I just wonder how they achieved that. Yeah, so we room. we had a really great dialect coach that we brought on. Her name's Courtney. She's fantastic. She's a professional, does a lot of films, but she actually has a Mormon background and grew up in, in Utah. And so this was like her, her sweet spot. She knew what she was doing. Um, it didn't always translate well. And this is my, you know, the criticism over the, the Heavenly Fathers in the first two episodes or whatever. I just, it's so frustrating to like sit back and watch that happen and see people just obsess over that as a way to dismiss the entire series. When you realize how difficult it is, you really are working with actors. Some of them, you like, you know, at the forest ranger or whatever, you get to work with the guy maybe a week, if you're lucky, maybe a day. And who know nothing about this culture or community and you're trying to translate. So the fact that Courtney pulled that off is pretty miraculous with the general authorities. But we also did, we sensed, I mean, again, it was overwhelming the, the, the care and interest. The cast was constantly asking for stuff. We sent them a lot of church videos from the 1970s and 80s. We sent them church talks. Um, we had them talk with people. So yeah, I, I would say that all, all credit goes to the actor and the dialect coach on that one. Hmm, that <laughs> well, was amazing. It was too much almost. <laughs> well, we're, I wish we could talk more about it, but we're not done with that character yet. Yeah, and you're not done. Well, and I have to say about the Heavenly Fathers, I mean, I know a lot of people thought it was over the top, but I was raised very Orthodox Mormon and it was similar to how it was in my household. We didn't say President Kimball, we said our beloved prophet, President Kimball. We had to spit that out every time we talked about him. We, we <laughs> did talk more like that. So I think it, it, 
you know, you have a Mormon, but he doesn't have the same experience of the Mormon next door growing up. All households were different. So in my household, saying Heavenly Father a lot, that was not so foreign to me, but others completely foreign. So I appreciate you saying that because I, yeah. you know, I work mostly, my colleagues are scholars and historians and, you know, educated folks. And I grew up very chapel Mormon. My parents are smart people, but we come from seven generations of Mormons, both sides of poor Danish farmers, basically. We were not the, the wealthy elite Mormons. We were the, the stalwart on the ground Mormons. And that is who we are. It's deep in our bones. There's a ruralness to it. All my uncles go on the hunt every year. And so I married into a similarly rural family and patriarchal priesthood is very, very important in, in that tradition. And so to, to have people who are scholars who had a different upbringing, part of me is so grateful that there's another experience out there, but that is not the experience that I had. I was lucky that my, my Mormon family was more liberal. My parents were Democrats of all people. Um, but I married into a very conservative family and now my work with fundamentalism, these, this, I mean, we, if people think that it's like caricatures, it's like you haven't met very many rural patriarchal Mormons. Um, cause I have, and it's a lot more intense, you know, some of the stuff that's so ridiculous that Mormons think are ridiculous that people say, it's like, maybe it's the first time they've actually heard it on screen. Like me in the temple, when you're realizing for the first time, oh, this is weird. You know, like I think hearing it for the first time is very startling and it's clearly very upsetting to people. And the denials um, to me are more a reflection of that than the accuracy itself. Cause like you said, for every discussion that says, I didn't grow up like that, you have five people that say I did or vice versa. And I think that that shows as the show is trying to show there is a diversity in Mormon experience. And that's what comes into conflict in the show. You know, one of the things that I, uh, the series, I want to actually want to talk about the, the use of flashbacks through the series as well as in this episode. Now, there were times when I thought the flashbacks worked. There were other times where I, I felt like it was confusing to somebody who doesn't know anything about Mormon history. Um, they wouldn't really understand what's going on. And, and, it, and, and even like with the term where they call the detective a Lamanite, well, they don't, they never really explain uh, what that is. So, so, so speaking to the, just about the flashbacks and maybe the lack of maybe uh, explaining to the audience exactly what's going on. Yeah. So I, obviously I'm not the filmmaker, so I can give you my opinion, but ultimately like there were decisions that were made that, you know, I don't want to speak for, but I'll speak to what I know. Uh, I, it's hard because there's this tension between like, let's address the Lamanite one, for example. So if we were to make the dialogue less clunky, a lot some people are saying it's clunky. If you were to do that and just talk in a normal cadence, how Mormons talk, there's a lot of insider rhetoric that people wouldn't understand. So one of the challenges was this translation process, right? Like the idea of using Heavenly Father so much and brother and sister so much in the first few episodes was to establish this universe to outsiders. And again, we're talking about people that not only know nothing about Mormonism, but there are communities all over globally who will be watching this that don't know Christianity. So we needed to show this is an insular in-group community. How do you do that? Everyone's talking in a certain code and it's strange, especially if you're an outsider, right? And most of the people watching this aren't Mormons. They're outsiders being brought into this universe. So, so there's that one, that one um, issue. Now, 
there's this other argument that audiences are smart enough to understand the translation. So by, by uh, and, and again, we went back and forth on this all the time. Do we engage in this translation process or do we just talk it how it is, use Lamanite? And um, I think we sort of settled on a mix of both. I would say critically, even though like, What's been so great anytime the show is getting like just you know criticized in the mormon community i'll go and read outsider reviews and it's doing so great and it's so nice to see how successful it is but i think the one critique that comes up are the flashbacks and in defense of the show i will say i think that um lance probably wanted more time you know seven episodes might seem like a lot but this should have been eight to ten maybe that's too long for people but I really would have liked to see that because when we shot the historical stuff and I was there for all of the historical, it was a lot more expansive, uh, rich and meatier in what we shot. And we had to cut it down so much into clips that we took shortcuts that, that as a historian and researcher, it makes me deeply uncomfortable because, you know, if you're a Mormon and you know, the insider stuff, you're like, ah, why are they saying Emma said that? Cause she didn't exactly say that that was, you know, Reynolds Cahoon or something. It's because we had to engage in that translation process and cut it way, 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 way down to the point where, um, yeah, the flashbacks are hard, especially if you're a Mormon and you want to see more of that. Or if you want everything to, you know, track with the documents, it doesn't always do that. And that that was that was very challenging for me. One of the things I thought was very fascinating was when they did the uh, martyrdom scene. And I had Justin Griffith on uh, who did who shot Joseph Smith movie. And as soon as I watched it, I thought, did they consult him? Because it seems like there's a conspiratorial element that he hints at, or actually pretty explicitly uh, is almost advocating Justin Griffith's view of that. What, what were your thoughts on how they recreated <laughs> all that? Well, I've been very public about my record there. I, um, absolutely do believe that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. I think we have an overwhelming amount of evidence. And, and uh, again, that's a conversation for a different time. When we first were shooting the scenes, I don't believe that that was part of the, the narrative. Um, it just it just wasn't. Um, in fact, when you hear we interviewed Brigham, the actor who played Brigham, he was, and that was before he'd seen all the episodes. So he didn't even know that they were going that role, that, that way with his role. He was like, people keep saying that there's this conspiracy theory. We didn't do that. I was like, well, you haven't seen all the episodes yet. Um, that was done to, again, translate this narrative. So one of the misunderstandings that I think that people have generally, especially in my mainstream community is, people are saying, oh, the show is trying to show that the history creates violence. It's like, no, 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 that's not what it is. Fundamentalists are trying to restore the restoration. They're trying to recreate the history. And we have overwhelming evidence of this. So for example, there's a story that when Joseph Smith was in Liberty jail, he was fed poison or human flesh from his jailers. Rebecca, do you remember that story? Yes, I do remember that story. <laughs> Warren Jeffs is in prison. He's told the same story to his followers about being tempted in the same way. Fundamentalists are often looking to the source material of the history to recreate it. So to show that in the show, we had to show that Ron and Dan were trying to recreate and justify their actions through the history. They don't always do that accurately. And that's 
I, I think my one regret is there's not, you know, Alan is telling this narrative of history that is his narrative. It's mixed with a very complicated narrative of fundamentalism. He grew up in a fundamentalist household with a lot of folklore. Uh, the chocolate scene is a good example of that, trying to show that he isn't he isn't perfect. But if you're an outsider and, and you're not probably thoughtfully engaging, you're just enjoying it, there's there's a risk that 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 is being seen as the truth, you know, the truth in the history. There's not this understanding of how complex it is. So I wish that we would have hit that home as much. I will say for my part in it, when it did become clear that they were taking that shortcut with the narrative to, to set up Ron to sort of take this, this role as the next one, the next patriarch, um, wherever I could, I took what was a definitive statement into a question and so we were able to soften alan's language in that rather than and who was running the ship it was brigham young to what if it was brigham young and that way i could feel more integrity with it because i i actually do think it's a dangerous idea to perpetuate this idea that brigham young uh killed joseph smith there's absolutely zero evidence to back that up it is true that brigham young was always uh scheming for power that's just how brigham young's mind worked and always had been from the time he was little to surviving his whole life right but uh to orchestrate killing joseph smith no 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 and i think the show softened that part of the problem is early screeners got a version of that that didn't have the softened language so i think it was already out in print and then uh, once it was shown with the questions, it kind of all gets conflated. And so that's that's kind of a tragedy to the historical record. But uh, now that it, you, you watch it, you can see it's kind of in question. And I would say the question I feel fine with because we actually know that Brigham Young spent the next two years after from the moment that that joseph he got word of joseph smith's death he was on a mission stumping for joseph smith for president he was finding a way to reconfigure the church and to put himself in power that there is a historical record of that so i feel like uh that's a minor detail that mormons are going to fight over i don't think it, it gives a false narrative to outsiders necessarily but i don't love that it fuels a, cons a conspiracy theory i struggle with that um because it's it's a danger. It's not a benign conspiracy theory. It's used to um, uphold and dismiss uh, some of the real harms that Joseph Smith perpetrated. And and I know that's an uncomfortable thing to say to Mormons. You're not you know you're not you're supposed to soften it and say Joseph Smith wasn't that way. But we have abuse in in the church today. We have uh, people today that are denying and and making fun of the show with the themes of abuse, and they're doing that because we have a culture that's had to make sense of prophets who do unsavory things sometimes. We have to develop a culture around it to make that okay. Because if we don't, then we have to contend with what our what some of our leaders have done. And that's not, that's not a comfortable thing. So that's a long way to say, I don't agree with that theory whatsoever at all. And I've tried to do a lot of work to counter that. No, I love what you said about having to become comfortable with unsavory things. It reminds me of one moment when I was still attending church, maybe like 10 years ago, that just sticks in my brain as a moment where I was like, okay, I have to be done with this. And it was Relief Society, and we were studying, I can't even remember which prophet it was. It was the one that that had not married, and he married four women within a few days or on the same day. 
you you could probably know who it is. I can't remember which one it was, but um, somebody made a joke about, oh, what a honeymoon, you know, because all these young girls on the same day and every woman in the Relief Society, older women, they all laughed. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, do you know what you're laughing at? Do you understand what, what we just heard that a man married four young girls on the same day or the next day, and you're making jokes about this honeymoon. <laughs> and to me, I just thought you've made this extraordinarily unsavory thing. Were you to hear this about anyone else in any other circumstance, you would be horrified. But this is just a cute story about a prophet. So no, I love that you said that. That's exactly right. Could yeah. I ask a question about um, the different kinds of Mormons that were portrayed? I thought that was excellent. Like there's Jeb's family, probably pretty mainstream. There's Brenda's family fairly liberal. I mean, he did hand Jeb a or Alan a chocolate, right? Then, of course, you have Lafferty's. You there's, there's the gamut, which I think is very accurate. There are so many different kinds of Mormon families out there. Was that intentional to show the different degrees of Mormonism, if you can say that? Or It absolutely was. I think that's the brilliance of this show and what I think will be an ultimate gift to Mormonism. Mormons are so obsessed with the way that we're portrayed. And you know, again, so angry and upset that this isn't a documentary on on the history and let's just say mormons we do not have a good record at seeing ourselves clearly or at uh telling our history clearly not so first of all settle down sit down and just like take a deep breath on that because we have not had a good record you know people are like why aren't faithful mormons telling the story we are go to legacy theater you can see it you can see how well that's working out for everybody um i think the reason why he did that is just because it's true. I mean, there are multiple Mormons. The the nonprofit that we run, our theme is there's more than one way to Mormon. And we're doing that theme because it's true. It's accurate. Mormon community. And again, I'm using that word not as a win for Satan because my tradition doesn't identify with it anymore. It's an umbrella term to suggest all of these movements that come out of the Joseph Smith church. And I will say this for fundamentalists better than mainstream fundamentalists at least know and will acknowledge there are other mormon churches the the mainstream latter-day saints it's this weird shame denial thing that we have to say we're the only ones they're not us they're not like us well they are they sing sing the same hymns have the same scriptural texts uh and as a latter-day saint myself in the mainstream church finding that out it was very shocking and it shouldn't have been shocking but it was because of the narratives i was taught so the fact that the show portrays that is good and everyone outside of the community that's not mormon is watching this and they're not saying oh my gosh look at all those crazy mormon polygamists they're saying wow i didn't realize there was such diversity wow it's complicated look at all these interacting mormonisms and that's what i want our people the mainstream people to realize this is a good thing because it's showing that there are diversity. And especially as we come up to this last episode, we're really going to see some stark uh, uh, differences. And I think that that's so important because it's true. Like I said, I grew up in a pretty liberal family. I, our family could watch rated R movies. We could drink Coca-Cola. And I always felt a certain amount of shame about that because when I interacted with more devout families or married into a, a family, I, I thought, we were the ones that were wrong and so i tried to conform to that and you see that in brenda's arc uh, so beautifully you see that in jeb's family and you see that with the stark differences with the lafferty families i know families 
who are exactly like the Lafferty family, who are a little bit extra. And if you're praying like this, they're praying like this. If you're drinking uh, soda, they're drinking lemonade. If you're eating uh, store-bought food, they're eating organic. Like it's just always another step that they can take to be a little bit more righteous. And the show does a really good job at showing that. And, and I think Lance has said this a few times and, and Jeb's character says it, uh, what Mormonism are you defending? And I love that because when there's such a reaction, especially for mostly just mainstream people about the show, it's like, who, what Mormonism are you defending? Which ones are you distancing yourself from? That's the question that, that I think is an opportunity and invitation for people to be asking because not every Mormonism is, is indicted in the show. And, uh, if you see it that way, that's a problem. That, that's, a, that's a judgment that, that you have on something because there are good Mormon characters in the show. And Lance wouldn't be a good writer if he didn't show uh, some redemption in, in these characters. Wow, this is really fascinating. And I'm so grateful, Lindsay, that um, Lindsay Hanson Park, thank you so much for coming onto the program. I, I wanna just ask you a question. Now you're, in, you're with Sunstone and you got the Sunstone Conference coming out this July. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, we are, I run Sunstone. It's a nonprofit. It's been around for 45 years. I didn't start it. I'm just the steward of it right now. It's an open forum where we discuss all topics of Mormonism. One of the frustrating, th frustrating things that I have had in my community is only talking about our faith in the context of proving the church true or false. Is the is church the only true church on earth or is it false? I don't like those discussions. I think they're harmful. They've been harmful to me personally on a spiritual and physical level. They've ostracized families and Mormons need to mature a little bit, put on some big kid pants and find better ways to talk about our faith because other faiths are doing that. And that's why Sunstone was started. It was started in the 1970s by some college students that wanted to have more grown up mature conversations that didn't just involve, you know, is the church true? So Sunstone is an open forum where you can talk about anything in Mormonism. You don't have to have a belief. You don't have to have a temple recommend. You can have a temple recommend. We definitely have faithful Mormons that engage and we have ex-Mormons and atheists. We have non-Mormons who study Mormonism. We have folks like you who have an interest in it, who think it's fascinating. And we all come together and we share ideas because we really do. I fundamentally believe that you can learn more um, about your own faith through hearing how other people experience it. I think that's a critical part of it. And Rebecca, you were talking about this experience in Relief Society. It, polygamy narratives hit different when you've met girls that were married off at 12 and 13, like I have, uh, uh, especially when you hear 12 and 13 year olds defend it saying, I was ready. I wanted to be a mother at 13. This was my calling. You know, all the things that we do to justify Joseph Smith, when you're sitting in front of a little girl with a bump who uh, hasn't even graduated from junior high yet, that is, that is a startling thing. And so Sunstone provides a way for you to confront that stuff, but also it, it's a way for you to confront the good stuff too. When you, when I hear evangelicals come and talk about their faith and their experience with God, it's so new and refreshing to me. The community of Christ who comes to Sunstone and talks about it. It's fantastic to hear how they commune with this Mormon text and God in a way that is affirming to women and LGBT people. It's beautiful. So Sunstone does that. So every year at the end of July, we have a 
a symposium. It's kind of like our Mormon Comic-Con. This year, it's July 27th through the 30th. You can register at sunstone.org. It's a huge, long conference, 150 presentations, all kinds of things. I mean, everything you can think of. Artists, poets, uh, scholars, historians. This year, we're going to have Under the Banner of Heaven cast. Emma Smith, Brigham Young are going to come. Um, Andrew Burnap, if he's not working, who played Joseph Smith, is going to come. It's, it's going to be so fun. We're going to have... Um, Darren Perry, who is part of the Shoshone Tribal Council, is going to do an Indigenous Perspectives on the show. We had a lot of Paiute um, consultants who couldn't make it out to the premiere and stuff like that because they live far away. So we're going to bring all those people together and have these discussions. So everybody's invited. And Sunstone also has the Mormon History Podcast, which I co-host with uh, scholar Brian Buchanan. And we deep dive into all of the Mormon history. So if you want to listen to that as well, that's what we do. That's fantastic. And I will be at Sunstone this year as well. So I'm very excited Yay! to see Sunstone. I just say <laughs> Sunstone too. where Burning Man meets Mormonism. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the thing. It's so weird. People will, be, you know, sometimes people will be like, oh, it's fringe Mormonism. I'm like, right. It's because fringe Mormonism is where the truth is. That's that's the truest Mormonism I can think of when we're talking about these faith politics. To let people let their sort of freak flags fly. There's nothing more true about that. And at Sunstone, everybody is welcome to do that as long as it doesn't infringe on the, the dignity and, um, you know, story of other people. And I think we do it pretty well. Great. Rebecca, you have anything to ask or add? You know, Sunstone kind of played a role in my journey because when I worked at BYU, um, I worked in the cataloging department, all kinds of things came across my desk, um, some periodicals I would have to catalog and Sunstone, believe it or not, was an article, was a periodical in the BYU library and I would be looking through it and I was raised very Orthodox Mormon. So I, I although I internally developed a lot of different ideas, I never knew that other people shared some of these ideas. And as I'm looking through this and also dialogue, I'm like, Hey, there's a whole different thing out there. So it really kind of opened my eyes a little bit. Of course, this is all pre-internet, late 80s, you know, but it was one, some of my first introductions to some other schools of thought that paralleled what I had kind of arrived at on my own. So I have never gone to the Sunstone Conference. This year, I keep telling my husband, this is the year we need to go because I feel fringing. I feel burning, man. Let's do it. So Yeah, you have to have a, you have to have a tolerance for having an open mind because yep, you'll yep. be there with polygamists and fundamentalists. Yep. You'll be there with Oh, yeah. you know, uh, hippie Mormons, like uh, one time Matt Page, who is one of our amazing vendors, dressed up like Brigham Young to sell his stuff. He was a perfect Brigham. I mean, you just never know what you're going to see. But that's what I love about it. It, it really is an invitation to, to be curious and to challenge sort of some of those discomforts in you in, in a way that I think is liberating and I hate to say this to my atheist friends, but it's Christ-centered. I mean, Christ was hanging out with the weirdos and the, the weirdos misfits, those are my people. And that's what we try to bring together at Sunstone. Oh, that's awesome. Gone to Burning Man. Yeah, I was just reminded that my husband spoke there a couple of years ago about... Um, He's standing there. What was it? Oh, double dipping, attending different kinds of services, your Mormon service. He was an active Mormon and then also going out to other groups through music. And he was actually, he's a, a DJ. He was asked to <laughs> DJ. It was a softball game between fundamentalists and. Oh, he did our kickball game. Yeah. I yeah. That, I, think I know your husband. Yeah. yeah. Thank and you. 
Richard Holman too. Yeah. So isn't that funny? There's so many. Yeah, we're doing the kickball again. So we might need him because we're having fundamentalists are playing ex-Mormons and kickball at the end of the thing. It's so fun. The trash talking between them is so fun because it's so ridiculously nerdy. More insider Mormon nonsense. It's my favorite thing. It's it's what Zion should be when kickball. Oh, this is it's great. Party. Oh, I'm it's loving party. this. I can't wait. I can't wait to get out there. So I just want to thank you so much. First of all, I just want to say a few things. Rebecca Biblioteca, you have the good book club. Uh, you can okay. check that out on Facebook and Instagram. Is that how they can access the book club? Uh-huh. Yep. Or just email me at thegoodbookclub at mail.com and I can send you all the information. We have a lot of fun. It's a virtual post-Mormon nuanced Mormon reading group. So I also just want to give you a shout out, Rebecca, because Rebecca and Allison are organizing another meet and greet um, June 1st. I will be in Draper, Utah. Um, it's going to be uh, in Costa Vida, uh, in Draper. Now, I, I ask that you email me or message me on Facebook because we want to have a count because the group, my viewership's much larger than last time I was in town. And we had a couple dozen people come out. So we want to make sure that we have enough places. So please let us know ahead of time. And also we have the, the invite in our private group as well. And Allison ordered some MBR buttons so uh, I'll be giving out, hopefully if they get in the mail in time, uh, we'll, I'll be handing out buttons as well for, for those who want to come out. And maybe I'll have a few left over for MHA as well. Uh, Lindsay, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the program. I would not have imagined when I started this little after show that you would be coming on. I, I admired you from afar for a very, very long time. It was a real privilege to meet you last year at the MHA. And uh, thank you for honoring us by coming on the program. Of course, always happy to talk to Mormons or about Mormons <laughs> to to Mormons and non-Mormons. So thanks for the opportunity. And I, I really appreciate the thoughtful way in which you engage difficult topics. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that. And you know, if you guys need an umpire for that kickball game, I mean, I, I don't have any dog in the fight. I, oh, you know what? Okay. I'm going to hold you to it. And I was just going to say, we should get you two on the program. You guys, if you guys want to do a, a session, that would be amazing too. So, but now uh, you heard it here. He's our umpire. <laughs> I'm going to let Moroni Jessup know he's helping organize the game. We would love that. That's great. Awesome. So folks, I just want to thank you so much for enjoying the after show. I remind you that uh, to don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. Uh, if you want to financially support the channel, you can do so through Patreon or through PayPal. And I want to thank you, my patrons and underwriters for supporting the program. It makes the ability for me to travel possible, like to go into Sunstone. Uh, we're on all the major podcast formats now. Uh, so look us up there as well. And I'm going to try to get Anthony to pump out some more because we're a little behind on the podcast side of it. Um, I just want to thank everybody for watching the show. All the great feedback I've been getting from a lot of Christians now are listening to the program, fundamentalists, uh, conservatives, uh, and, and ex, uh, atheists, uh, Christians are all reaching out to me. And I just love the diversity of this audience. And I just want to wish you all a great day. And Allison, and I mean, uh, Lindsay, Allison, I'm thinking Allison Biggers, Lindsay and Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having us. All right, everybody. God bless.